Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I had a chance to chat with Isabella Schmidt and Stephanie Moll from Proxima Clinical Research. And the topic that we dove into is conducting clinical trials during COVID. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and the founder of Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And as we're talking about this, and and I'm sure by the time this goes live, it's still going to be the case. Uh, we're we're all still, you know, in this uh, pandemic situation in the world. I think we're all trying to figure out, specifically from a medical device industry standpoint what the impact is. I know there's been a lot of movement on the emergency use authorization. I've heard some stories from other companies that this has caused some some challenges and delays and, and some of the challenges and delays have been in their clinical studies, you know, which is unfortunate because, you know, they're developing other very meaningful products and technologies and uh, but I, th- I think we're starting to figure out ways to navigate this. And the good news is we've got some experts joining uh, us today on the Global Medical Device podcast. We have uh, Isabella Schmidt. Isabella has been a, a guest before. Isabella is with Proxima Clinical Research, and, and uh, she is a regulatory affairs consultant. And joining her is one of her colleagues at Proxima is uh, Stephanie Mall. Uh, Stephanie is the Director of Clinical Project Management. So ladies, welcome. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So clinical trials, I mean, this is one of your areas of domain expertise. And I guess before we dive too deep in in the subject, this is current pandemic. It's it's caused some some chaos, I got to imagine, right? Yeah. So a lot of the trials have been stalled and, you know, it's hard to get sites up and running. Um, Stephanie can probably talk to a lot of the details associated with that. But yeah, it's, it's been crazy, especially outside the U.S. too. Yeah. I think we've seen that, you know, sites have been suspending their operations of clinical trials. They're restricting visitors coming in. Um, so CRAs can't come on site. Several of the CRAs are not traveling just for uh, health reasons as well. Subjects aren't able to come in as well. So we're seeing right. a lot of issues with just sites not being able to operate normally. Um, and then sponsors and CROs not being able to operate normally either. Right. I guess I'm curious, are there some device spaces or, or uh, products and technologies that, in, in your opinion, have been impacted more than others? Do you have any thoughts about that? Usually if it's a, like an elective thing, those are pretty impacted. You know, they don't want, especially if it's an elective thing that's involved with the hospital, right? Because the hospitals are a bit overloaded. Um, and a lot of medical device studies are in hospitals, university hospitals. And, and so they get pretty impacted with, you know, in specific areas too, you know, like Houston right now uh, is a bit overloaded. Uh, with cases. So it's, it's sometimes difficult to get some of the, the sites up and running here. And so I, I'd say, you know, across the board, I, I think it's been more difficult than normal, but um, not impossible. 
uh, but like elective procedures have had more of a, a halt to them. I don't know. Stephanie, do you have any other ones? Yeah, we've, we've seen that. We've had um, a few of our trials that have involved elective procedures that have had to be delayed for several months because the hospitals were wanting to save bed space. And um, so those procedures could not continue. And uh, Isabel, you talked about, you know, Houston being, you know, maybe a little bit impacted because of availability and, and spikes and things of that nature. You talked a little bit about the, the global, you know, this is a global phenomenon that we're seeing too. Are, are there areas of the world where, where we're starting to see a, an increase or clinical studies pick back up? Is, is there anything, you know, light at the end of the tunnel in a good way? So I can tell you, I guess, the reverse answer to that. Not too long ago, and this may, this you know, everything's changing so quickly. I know, so it's so it's fluid. To say exactly. But, you know, not too long ago, a client um, in Finland asked me when we would be able to run clinical trials again. This might have been maybe a month ago. And, you know, I so they are obviously more closed for clinical trials there. Um, and I told them, well, you know, in the United States, we're still kind of, we're still running the trials and we are still running the trials. It's just in a different atmosphere here now. And I think that that's the case probably in a lot of the places that are impacted, you know, Europe and well, I guess, you know, China's pretty resolved now, I think at least. So, you know, that, that impact has been kind of pretty widespread, you know, where even if the trials are running, there are changes being made, you know, people are moving to more remote monitoring, um, you know, or virtual visits, um, things like that are occurring more. And so that does take a, that does make the site shift how they practice. And so that can lead to certain, you know, complications and considerations for sponsors and also for the site. And Stephanie, you started to share, or you shared a couple of things a moment ago about some of the causes that can suspend a study. Do you mind maybe elaborating on on those just a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I think the the first thing is the subject safety. You know, that's always the paramount issue in a clinical trial, whether there's COVID or not. Right. We we have to always make sure that whatever we're doing, the subject safety is the first thing that we're we're taking into consideration. So, you know, as trials have been met with the impact of COVID, you know, the the sites um, and the sponsor both have to stop and take a look and say, can, is what my trial all about? Can I continue going forward in this environment and still ask the subject to participate and come in and are, are they going to, to be put at risk? And so you, you really have to stop and, and evaluate all of that. And, you know, and you have to evaluate both sides of it. Is there a risk for them coming in and, and contracting COVID just by being out and about, right? Or are, is there then an, an alternate safety risk of them not being seen because of, and then continuing on without being seen in the study with their investigational product, whatever that may be. So you have to look at both sides of it. And so really have to weigh, where do I need to ensure that the subject is being safely monitored? And like Isabella was saying, that's where then you, because of those risks on both sides, we, we don't want to put the subject in undue risk by asking them to come in, but yet I can't suspend. Um, I may not be able to, for my particular trial, suspend all visits for that subject because of the particular investigational product they're receiving, I need to follow up for safety reasons. So that's where, you know, you, we really have to 
look at the the trial and and pivot with the site and look at you know what what can I do with the site to make sure that the subject safety is going to be of utmost importance going forward. A couple other things, just the availability of the staff. You know, a lot of uh, clinics had to shut down uh, their staff, you know, having them come in, that's also a risk to their safety. So, you know, one of the things about starting up a clinical trial that you always have to ask is, you know, does does the PI have adequate staff to run the trial and, and can he provide adequate, he or she provide adequate oversight? And if you don't have staff any longer, then you can't fulfill that requirement. And, you know, your, your staff, you, if you just have one or two staff left that can work on the trial, are they also adequately trained? So, you know, there's a lot of questions you have to ask as you're, as you're determining all of the risk and then what are the choices that you want to make for how you can continue the trial safely. No, those, those are really good points. I mean, I, I guess, you know, starting off this conversation, you know, naively, I was thinking, oh, well, this, I mean, it sucks that, that I was planning to do a clinical study and then, uh, you know, something happens and I can't do this and it's delayed. But but I totally forgot about the studies that were already in progress, right? That's This is creating probably a lot of concern for folks. Yeah, and having to, to I guess, there's also, you, you set up a site and a or not a site, a study in a certain way and a site as well. But, and, you know, mostly everybody wants to, you know, going electronic is usually the way to do things now. Electronic as much as possible. You have auto trails and all that. And so it's way more controlled than if you do paper. But if you're trying to do something on a pretty lean budget, sometimes sponsors will still do paper studies. Paper studies are pretty hard if you can't go to the site to do the, the clinical monitoring that you normally would be able to go there. And so then you have this complication of, do you do you switch to electronic and and what does that look like? And then um, if you're switching to electronic, you know you have to find your EDC system and then you have to make sure that your EDC system is part eleven compliant and that all the signatures are part eleven compliant. And so you get into sort of this like you fall down a rabbit hole, I guess, into like all of the, the changes that you have to undergo and you know making sure that you're still collecting and monitoring the data as as much as you possibly can because FDA still wants you to do that. And, you know, if you're deviating from, from either, you know, monitoring or, you know, patient visits, you know, protocol deviations, you have to document all those. And FDA is aware that, you know, with, with COVID that that'll happen more because everything's so unstable, I guess, right now. But they still want you to keep track of that, you know, so that when you do go with your submission to FDA, they understand what happened. And if you get a site audit, that's also documented there as well. And, and so, like, you know, with all of that documentation, um, that helps kind of address any variability that there might be in your data. So, you know, um, if you're if you have patient windows, you know, often in clinical trials, patients have visit windows. Um, and so it may be difficult for patients to get to sites in those windows. And so then you have a protocol deviation there. If it's a protocol deviation for safety, always the, the safety, like Stephanie was saying, of the patients is paramount. And so you, you make the choice to have that protocol deviation. But FDA, you know, normally you have to get a protocol deviation approved or not protocol deviation, but a protocol amendment approved, sorry. Um, And so, you know, FDA typically will want you to get that protocol amendment approved before you start executing on that amendment. So you're changing visit windows or you're changing from uh, inpatient, you know, in-person visits to 
uh, virtual visits. That's something that would probably require a protocol amendment. And normally you get that approved through the IRB and all that first. But in this particular case, if it's a safety related issue, they would just want you to kind of have a deviation and you'd start doing that. And then you have to inform them after you started. Wow. For IDEs, they want it within five days. But within five days, but they're, they're also understanding about that. So if, if you can't, you have like an N of one um, on the sponsor side working on your studies, it might be difficult for you to report all of the deviations and, you know, amendments and things like that within five days. So. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, this is the world that, that you both live in, and I guess I never thought about it. I mean, I, I assume protocol deviations and amendments, I mean, this happens on a normal basis, right? Yeah, I mean, we just as you're going along in the trial, deviations happen. Patients don't show up when they're supposed to. Um, assessments are out of window, you know, a lot of times. And you just document it, and, you know, if it's a minor deviation, you know, you keep a keep track of that. Major deviations obviously need to be reported appropriately to the yeah. IRB and, and sponsor. But yes, in this environment, you know, there's a there's a lot more deviations going on because of, you know, just what's happening across the board with the pandemic. So, you know, and ideally, yes, you would like to submit an amendment first to the FDA before you implement anything. But again, as Isabella said, because of sub- subject safety, you want to make sure that you're looking at that first and sure. implementing any changes, and then you can notify the FDA after that. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, based on the two of you describing this, that the number of deviations is probably significantly higher. And what that says to me, I mean, as Bill, you mentioned EDC, I'll just elaborate. I assume that means electronic document control, but it's, it seems to me that that you know, document control and document management is, is probably a, a core competency for anybody you know, conducting a trial begin with but but now this is you know exaggerated this probably puts a lot more emphasis on good documentation practices yeah so it stands for electronic data capture oh see Absolutely. i didn't even have it right well i'm glad i said something then that's good um <laughs> You know, just throwing out terms like everybody knows what they mean. Well, I'm the acronym girl now. Well, you know, it, you know, it's an acronym-rich industry, and and there's there's segments where the acronyms are different than in other segments. So I'm glad you elaborated on that. You know, the the subject of vis- visits that that seems like a really important thing, and I you know I could speculate, but I gotta imagine there's probably some some best practices that you have seen uh, and, and might be able to, to suggest to folks, how do you handle virtual visits? Any best tips or pro tips you could suggest? Sure. Subjects can have phone visits. That would be one of the first things. That's probably one of the easiest ones to implement. And phone visits are oftentimes routine parts of clinical trials anyway, especially in maybe some long-term follow-up studies where you just want to call subjects and check on them for um, adverse events and any con meds, things like that. But you know, as you're, if you're switching from what would normally be an in-person visit to a phone visit, there might be some things that you can't accommodate, right? Like you can't check somebody's vitals while they're on the phone. So you could potentially still conduct the phone visit and and ensure that the subject is safe. You know, are there any adverse events that are happening? Um, You know, you can check on them with, you know, any of their investigational product and, and how that's going. 
but you will, like we talked about, probably have to write deviations for the things that you couldn't do because you weren't in person. Another option that we've seen sites doing is switching to virtual visits, a teledoc. So, you know, oftentimes a lot of sites already have started to implement those just in their routine practice, um, not necessarily for research. So, you know, if a site already has that up and running and and they can utilize that, um, one thing I would just say is that switching you know, from an in-person to a televisit does require some training. And I think we would need to document that, that the site does understand how to conduct a visit over video um, Mm -hmm. and ensuring that, you know, there's the proper controls in place. So, um, you know, just, you just need to think about that and and how will you document the training that the staff have to ensure Mm -hmm. that they know how to conduct those visits. But those are the two types of visits that could still continue, you know, from the site and the subject. The other types of visits that have been um, going remotely are your monitoring visits. Um, And I think we've touched on that a little bit before. So we've seen, you know, typically when you start a trial, you do a qualification visit of the site where you go on site and you check out, you know, do they have the necessary space? Do they have the staff? You know, you actually see the people in person. Um, You see where they're going to store the equipment, you know, and you can check all that out. We're not in this environment. Most of the sites are not allowing on-site outside visitors. Some are starting to, but a lot of the larger institutions still are not. Uh, and then, you know, when you have to initiate a site and train them, oftentimes, you know, we do that on-site as well. And and again, we're having to be creative and come up with ways of of how we can train sites to conduct the trial appropriately, um, not being in person with them. We had one um, interesting scenario where uh, a site had to be trained on a device. They, we couldn't do it in a remote fashion. They had to actually have hands-on experience with the device. And so we rented a, a space at a local hotel right across the street from the, from the institution. And so the staff could come to that hotel and, you know, maintain social distancing and wear masks and be safe, but could have that hands-on training with the device. Um, and we could still accomplish that even though um, we weren't necessarily allowed onto the institution itself. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds like you're being creative in a, in a productive way. So good on you. Folks, I want to r- remind you, I'm talking to Stephanie Mall and Isabella Schmidt. Both these ladies are with Proxima Clinical Research. They do a ton of work, certainly in clinical, and but also on regulatory front. I would encourage you to learn a ton more about Proxima Clinical Research by visiting their website. It's proximacro.com. Stephanie, you talked about a moment ago, like you know, the doing some of the virtual visits, and and you said something that I was curious about about like vital signs, where a patient needs you know vital sign checks and things like that. I, you know, I got to imagine a lot of patients who are in these studies, they don't have, you know, blood pressure monitors and and things of that nature. So are you seeing like, like uh, those patients be issued like in-home health devices to be able to do that? That is something that that could be considered. You know, I, I think a lot of the options that are out there to do, you just have to take into consideration like the time and effort that it requires to get those things um, procured and then shipped to sites to give to patients and sometimes, and then documenting all of that change and how it's going to be managed. And so, you know, assessing that timeline versus the timeline of COVID overall that we don't really know, you know, and, and 
and making those assessments to say, okay, we're going to do this, you know, kind of creative, innovative thing a little bit differently, but we have to make sure we document all of it and, and we're changing, you know, if we have to write up any plans or amendments for how this is going to be handled and make sure all that's in place and then you can move forward with it. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's things like that. Um, there's also, you know, site subjects could go potentially like if they need to get their labs and they can't go into the site, but there's a, a local lab that's available, they could go there to get their labs, provided that it's the labs are standard that would be drawn that are available at any la- local lab. You know, something like that. You could you could do that in an instance as well. And, and, you know, the FDA guidance allows for something like that. So you just, there's there's things that can be done. Um, and I think you just have to take a look at your study and the scale of your study and the number of patients impacted and the sites. And, and maybe not every single site has that option either. So it's a little bit of a nuance of what's available at each site, what options there are, and then looking across the study as a whole and, and ensuring subject safety first and foremost, but then data integrity and, and what's going to happen at the end of the study with the data um, and, and thinking about that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know in, in general, the topic of human factors is, is a, a, a big area of focus for medical device companies. And it seems like with all of these nuances that this pandemic is causing from a clinical trial perspective, that it, it might even put even more emphasis on, on the human factors side of things. Do you have any context to, or anecdotes or things or tips or pointers that you might want to share with folks? Actually, Stephanie and I had a conversation before this conversation, and uh, one of the topics that we talked about was, it wasn't necessarily human factors, but it was just about uh, changes to device design um, regardless uh, of human factors or other reasons to make them a little bit more um, I'm getting to human factors that usable in the, the COVID world, you know, and what what does that mean? Um, ease of use for different personnel, maybe um, would be a human factor kind of thing, but also like the ability for remote devices, right? Uh, I think is coming to be a bit more important to like wearables to your point about, you know, tracking vital signs, you know, even outside of clinical trials, just tracking vital signs, you know, in, in normal clinical uh, space is becoming really important and you know being able to do that from a safe distance is obviously better than you know sticking a thermometer in someone's mouth so I think I don't know that I would have a specific example of someone doing something particularly interesting with human factors because of COVID but there are obviously very there are a lot of pivots um, not only with design but with companies who have a device who could utilize that device for COVID who are uh, maybe not pivoting entirely, but they're switching their focus for a little bit to do, as you mentioned before, an EUA. So we've seen a lot of that, a lot of EUAs coming out of, especially diagnostic companies who maybe have a platform technology that they can modify a bit to to be COVID related. Um, And then, you know, to your usability point, just throwing this out there, but if, if you're doing like a home use case, that's a whole different ball game um, sure. with diagnostics than it is if, you know, you're doing a, a clinical space, but uh, usability becomes really important for home use diagnostics. Yeah. And I, I think I read or heard something recently where um, 
I think it's NIH has this program, and I don't have all the details behind it, um, so forgive me for for that, but maybe this will jog some memory cells on your end, but there's some program at NIH level, and there's a significant amount of funding. I, my number's probably off, but it's something like $2 billion or something is being uh, allocated to companies for, I think, some sort of COVID diagnostic test or something along those lines. Is, is anything that I'm saying ring a bell with either of you? Have you heard of this thing? Is it it's all of us? Is that what it's called? I don't I, I Forgive me. I'll, I'll look. I'll look it up. But, <laughs> but anyway, there is a question here. I'll get to it. It triggered a thought that, you know, I think a lot of the people that are or companies that are diving into this program, some of them are, are new to med device. Some of them are not new to med device. But, you know, just the, the notion of it being a diagnostic test says to me, oh, wow, there's going to be some sort of clinical component to this. It seems like, it, you know, understanding how to navigate uh, clinicals in this environment is really important. So, you know, assuming some of those folks might be listening, do you have any key tips or pointers on, on what folks should do? I mean, I know they should call Proxima CRO, but uh, aside from that, any practical advice? Specifically for diagnostics? Well, it doesn't have to be for, for diagnostics. Diagnostic I'm just saying in general. I mean, I know there's a lot of folks who are, you know, jumping in to try to develop some sort of diagnostic or test or... or someone who doesn't have medical yeah, device in the past. Like right, they're coming right. from a different industry. Right. I think the biggest thing for them to be aware of is that it's a total... If they're coming from an unregulated industry, uh, they're going to be... I've seen this. So they're going to be a little shocked about what it's like to be in a regulated industry. So beyond, you know... I guess if they're coming from an, you know, not a medical device perspective, they've never done a clinical trial before, so everything will be new to them on that front, so they won't really have any comparison to make. But clinical trials are heavily regulated, and even when you have an EUA where they tell you that your quality system is less than it is normally, and it is, you still have to have a lot of procedures in place to do complaint handling and things like that. So, um I would say, like, be aware that, you know, taking on, and they I'm not discouraging them by any means, but they should just be aware that taking on, you know, something in the healthcare industry is a heavier lift than they may be used to in some of the other industries. Um, and, you know, particularly like consumer electronics and things like that. And there's just, a, you know, a, a change in, in sort of the mentality that you have to, to live by. Um, in the medical products industry. Um, and, and I've seen, you know, companies coming, like saying, John, from, you know, consumer electronics and aerospace. And, you know, they're coming up with, they're typically doing more of the ventilator side of things. But, um, yeah. you know, a lot of people are doing face masks, which are a little bit less of a heavy lift than some of the other EUA products, but still different. And, and so I would just say the main thing, I would say across the board, not just with clinicals, but across the board is to to be aware that there are regulations surrounding these products. Yeah. Um, and and, I, and I'm sure the Proxima team I'm sure the Proxima team is more than willing to to have conversations with those folks and try to give give them a little bit of education of the things they should be be focused on from a clinical perspective, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Stephanie, do you have anything to add to, to the clinical? Yeah, yeah I was just going to say the only other thing I was just going to add to that is if somebody is in the process of maybe they've already crossed over and said that, you know, I'm ready to start a clinical trial is, you know, and they're kind of on that cusp of thinking about what they're going to do. I guess I would say that feasibility and talking to the sites at this point is really important. What 
one site has and the process and the procedures they have in place for how they're handling COVID and patient visits and new trials might be very different than another site, especially when it comes to like academic centers versus community-based versus research standalone sites. I guess I would just encourage the you know, those folks uh, that are that are going to be starting a new trial to have conversations and ask the questions of what procedures do you have in place for COVID? How are you operating right now? How are you doing patient visits? Understand what the site has for a procedure in place. And then you can get kind of a broad landscape, like, you know, call five of your sites that you want to participate, talk to them, understand their process. What are they allowing? What are they not allowing? Um, you know, one of the things, and, and maybe we'll touch on this in a little bit, but, you know, for remote monitoring, it's really great if a site ha- can give you access to their EMR remotely. That makes life really easy for monitoring the data. So there's still things you have to do to, to cover your bases and, and all of that, but it's it's much easier if a site can transition from having, you know, in-person monitoring visits to remote monitoring visits that they can give you access to the EMR. And so I I guess I would just encourage anybody that's new out there to, again, qualify your sites, talk to them, understand where they're at, what what procedures do they have in place, and and how are they operating at this current time? Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, go ahead. Um, one thing I would say, and I guess this is for people who may be going into their first clinical ventures, but some of the lingo we're using may not be familiar to them, and they might not even know what monitoring means. So essentially, monitoring is when you have a qualified person, and qualified would be someone trained and who knows how to do clinical monitoring, go to a site or remotely get information from a site that looks at their quote-unquote source data, which is essentially usually de-identified patient records to see, you know, particular interesting things that you're collecting for the site. So usually you'll have something called a case support form where you collect a bunch of data that is relevant to your study. And you need to usually verify that information in your case report form, which can be in the form of an EDC against the source data at the site to make sure that it's accurate. So that's one thing. And then you'll also go to the site to check for things or, or remotely look at the, the site to check for things like protocol deviations, you know, the patient come outside of a window that you weren't expecting. Um, so that's all the, the clinical monitoring things. It, it's you know, having control over the study and making sure that the study is also progressing at the pace that it, it should be um, yeah. moving along. And EMR is electronic medical records too. So that's another acronym that we threw out there. So, um, <laughs> so I, I don't know if I, if I covered all of the, all of the basics there, Stephanie is, did I miss anything? You got us. Great job. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, or maybe I'm going to ask you to, to speculate a little bit. Of course, we have, none of us have any idea how long this situation is, is going to be, uh, quote, the new normal. But at the same time, I mean, we know it's, it is the current normal. Um, so do you see this kind of shaping the future of clinical trial design? I mean, like the process behind it and how I do it. And I mean, again, I'm asking you to speculate. I know, you know, quality and regulatory people don't like to speculate a lot of times. So I I might be making you a little uncomfortable with that question. 
I don't mind speculating. So I would say, and again, Stephanie, you can disagree with me on this speculation, but I would say that we're, I think as an industry, we're trying to switch more to electronically doing things as mm-hmm. much as possible anyway, and reducing the, the, I guess, monitoring burden, quote unquote. So like we're moving towards risk-based monitoring um, and, uh, and, like remote monitoring and we're moving from the you know, paper theater us in the past and all electronic data capture systems. So I would say that we're kind of, we're in that shift anyway. Um, so I would say this is just giving us like a little kick in the butt to go a little bit faster with it. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you, Isabella. I think, you know, some of the areas that maybe people have kind of dipped their toe in the water in the past and like, some sponsors were doing electronic things. I think we're going to see a lot more people pushing forward into being as much electronic across the board for documentation and you know record keeping and things like that. Sites have to keep a regulatory file for on site um, for the any trial that they initiate and and that contains all of the required. FDA documents and, and essential documents that they need. And so, you know, oftentimes that's been in paper and I'm, I'm seeing, you know, a lot of sites starting to, to push now into having um, electronic ways of keeping that. So, you know, I think not only on the site side, but on, on the sponsor side and the CRO side, you know, pushing a lot for, more forward into um, as much electronic means as possible. Um, I think doing data capture through electronic means, the EDC, electronic data capture and electronic case report forms. I think that's been around for a good long while. Um, and a lot of trials have been in that method. But I think some of the other ways of, of um, doing the monitoring, you know, and, and keeping your records and things like that in, in electronic means is where we're going to see some of the changes as well. And I think, I think we're going to see some cost savings as well in, in that. And, you know, if we can complete more visits remotely and on more of a risk-based approach, you know, you don't have to send a person to the site to check their data and monitor their data. You can do that remotely. So you save travel costs and you save the time that they're, you know, in between. So it's, um, I think there's hopefully going to be some efficiency and cost savings that we'll see out of all of that. Well, I mean, it sounded like a silver lining to me. I mean, <laughs> right? It only takes a pandemic to have a silver lining. <laughs> well, you know, and that's, that's it's something that we've um, seen and heard a lot from Greenlight customers that, you know, so much of the medical device industry across the board, um, regardless of functional discipline, has been probably too heavily reliant on paper, you know, full stop. And what we've been hearing from from our customers, because Greenlight, you know, is a SaaS platform for managing design and development and quality events and document management, change management, all the all the things that you would fit underneath your quality management system. That Greenlight is actually enabling them to get work done in this current environment because everybody's remote. So you know, maybe that is the silver lining that this is going to improve best practices because it is a little crazy to think about in 2020 how much we as an industry still rely on paper. Yeah, That's very true. I totally agree with that. You guys should add video conferencing to your agreement system <laughs> and people can hold their like Kappa meetings and stuff through the software. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe like a Zoom integration or something. That's not a bad <laughs> yeah. idea. <actually. laughs> 
uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll actually log that. It's an interesting one. So I'll capture that as a, as a feature request, but um, <laughs> if it starts making you billions of dollars, I would yeah, we'll, we'll, send, we'll send you the residual. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Here. We'll just call it the Isabella feature. We'll name it. The, yeah. So, you know, it could be good, could be bad, but yeah, you know, I guess that's worth the risk. <laughs> Uh, all right, ladies, you know, to kind of wrap things up today, any other key points, tips, gotchas, uh, anything else come to mind on this topic of clinical trials during COVID that we haven't talked about today that, that you think is really important to share? I would just say um, that whatever you do to change things to respond to COVID in your trial, you know, especially if you're in the midst of the trial, is that you document it. And you know, that's, that's the big thing in our industry is, you know, if it's not documented, it wasn't done. And so I think, you know, whether it's a deviation after the fact or, um, you know, updating your plans that govern how you're going to run the trial, uh, your monitoring plan, your project management plan, your communication plan, you know, your whatever plan you might have for the trial, making sure that they're updated with all of the changes that you're making, you know, again, protocol updates, all of that, and, and that you're documenting what you're doing to protect the subjects and, you know, continue to move your, your trial forward. All right. That's great. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. The other thing that I would say is if this is your first foray into a regulated industry like this, I would get help. I wouldn't try to do everything myself because regulated industries are regulated and so you want to make sure that you're compliant with the things that you're doing. Even if you're trying to even if you're trying to run it yourself, I would at least get some advisors to help you out. Great tips. And folks, one of the best in the business is the Proxima Clinical uh, Research Team. You can, again, find out more about them. Go to Proxima, C-R-O-P-R-O-X-I-M-A-C-R-O.com. And I want to thank uh, Stephanie Moll and Isabella Schmidt for being my guests on the Global Medical Device Podcast. I, I mentioned it briefly a moment ago, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help. We are the only medical device quality management system on the market today that's designed exclusively and only for the medical device industry, designed by actual medical device professionals. So, you know, if you need a little bit of help with document management, setting up your quality system, capturing your design and development activities, the risk associated with all of these things are important if you're going to be entering into any sort of clinical trial of any way, shape, or form, in addition to just being a medical device company. This, these are expected behaviors and best practices. I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn a whole bunch more about the only medical device QMS on the market today. As always, thank you for being a loyal listener of the number one podcast in the medical device industry, the Global Medical Device Podcast. Share the word with your friends and colleagues and uh, be sure to tune in again real soon for another episode. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.